1: This episode of the show before the show podcast the official podcast of minor league baseball it is uh a good day to talk about some fun milb stuff along with slamming sammy dykstra and uh big basher benjamin hill in new york city my name is tyler Mon. uh what's going on guys wait wait, wait. wait. what yeah what is your name yeah you can't Uh, just give us i can't give myself a nickname i'm not charlie blackman here yeah tyler
0: moonshot Mon. i don't know what do you what do you want I'm trying to think of slugging stuff here. It? Yeah. The T for some reason is not coming.
1: Thundering uh, Tyler Oh, thundering is kind of cool. Except it's yeah. like a th yeah. sound and a tu follows. But, you know, whatever, we can let it slide.
2: Yeah, it's not uh, a baseball
1: term. I kind of like tumultuous Tyler Mon.
2: Just, just and, because.
1: And accurate.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: for all of my energy in life. Uh well, let's uh, let's get started on this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast. We got a lot of fun stuff coming up for you today as we get closer and closer to pitchers and catchers reporting to spring training uh with the the season on the horizon as crazy as that is. Um one selfish bit of uh excitement. We're recording this on Thursday, February 9th. World Baseball Classic rosters will be announced tonight. We'll talk about prospects uh, on WBC squads coming up next week, Um, but that'll be tonight on MLB Network. So by the time you're hearing this, it's already aired, and then this is a pointless commentary for you. But uh, you can go to MLB.com. Check out all the rosters. Get set for the Classic, which kicks off on March 8th in Taichung, Taiwan. And uh, let's get started on this uh, week's episode of the show before the show. We, we're we going to kick things off. we got a couple of interviews coming up for you this week. But we're going to kick things off with a really cool conversation that Ben got started in the newsletter, uh, which is about keeping score at minor league baseball games. Uh, And Ben, you said this generated a whole lot of response from people, which this is always one of my favorite kinds of conversations about if people keep score, how people keep score. There are so many different styles and strategies and and all that type of thing. Uh, Tell us about what the response was like to this.
2: Yeah, it was a great response. The Ben's Biz Beat newsletter. Please subscribe if you haven't. There's a little uh, newsletter tab on MILB.com. Also, Twitter at Ben's Biz in my profile, uh, in my bio uh, I had the link to subscribe. And, you know, I try to ask a question every week, a question of minor concern. Um, and I solicit from readers questions to ask as well, which and this was one of those that a, a reader suggested I ask. And it was do you keep score at minor league games? And uh, so this week's newsletter dropping later today, Thursday, February 9th, uh, I actually dedicated to just one man's response because he told a whole story be- beginning with his grandfather in the late 50s and, uh, you know, moving to the present day. And, I, and usually I don't have like a 400 word response in the newsletter, but I was like, this is so good. I'm just going to do it. And then next week I'll have a bunch of more uh, smaller, you know, bite sized responses. So um, I was really surprised, obviously keeping score is not the most common thing, but I think like a lot of things, the people who do keep score are really into it and got a lot of great responses from uh, people, minor league baseball fans explaining, not just saying, yes, I keep score, but explaining why and, you know, what it means to them. And, you know, with minor league baseball keeping score, um, I think there's the, the fun aspect of it is that you can look back on those. I mean, it's fun to look back on anything you keep score, but in the when you keep score in a major league game, those guys are already in the majors. Um, and it might be cool to be like, oh yeah, that was you know Mike Trout's rookie year or whatever the case may be. But in the minors, there's an extra layer of being like, oh wow, you know you might forget, but like you know, wow, you know, Coco Crisp was in this <laughs> uh, Eastern League game uh, in 2002 that I happened to attend, and like that those little things. Um, so I, I hope people uh, you know enjoy that in the newsletter, and uh, you know, I was curious. I mean, Tyler, for you, it's a whole different thing as a broadcaster, but was curious with your guys. And I I no one really taught me how to keep score, but I was just such a baseball fan. I started doing it in college, maybe, just and at that point I knew baseball well enough just to pick it up. And I used to keep score at every game I attended. And as uh, you know, the years have gone by, I've gone go, go to less games, at least as a fan, um, and often try to be social. And I do it less now because sometimes it's just you're trying to you know, get something to eat. You're trying to talk to people and it can be tough. Also, I have kind of compulsive tendencies and I'm not good at just, you know, marking like wasn't watching. I'll spend all this time, you know, trying to reconstruct it and, you know, tabulate the pitching lines as soon as a guy's out of the game. And I need to calm down a little bit, but yeah, curious about you guys and like, you know, what, what your, uh, experiences with keeping score or, you know, when you first
0: learned. Yeah. Tyler, you start first. Cause you're as a broadcaster, this is a key part of the job, right?
1: Yeah, it is, which is uh a little crazy. Um I I had started keeping score back, you know, like middle school, high school, some, you know, nerdy age. I still actually have the the Colorado Rockies used to do really cool giveaways back in the day. Um and they gave away a clipboard uh for a game once which had instructions on the clipboard of how to keep score. And I think that's how I learned was just like reading off that clipboard. You know, my dad kind of helped me out and uh, and I learned through various means, but I do remember that playing like a big role and like, oh, this is this is really cool. This is sort of how I, uh, you know, understand how to, how to do these things going forward. Now, yeah, it's definitely a, a totally different thing uh, as a broadcaster because you do want to have the ability to look back four innings ago this guy's at bat what happened what was the situation and all of that um and you know so it's evolved now i do it uh thanks to to dave sims who's one of the broadcasters with the seattle mariners i remember listening to an interview with him years ago about how he color codes his scorecards for He's gonna you know, bring that up you see yeah. these broadcasters with like a little cup or whatever of all these different colored markers that is me now yeah yeah, yeah, I'm very much that way. So I've got like a color for a strikeout, for a walk, for uh, you know, an error, for a hit by pitch, uh, uh an outstanding play that I want to highlight and go back to later on. Um, so yeah, it's it's very much uh a multi-layered thing now. Uh, but it's great. I love I love keeping score and it does keep you so much more engaged in the game too. Um, and yeah, I do I do remember uh a lot of times, you know, prior to getting into broadcasting where I thought like Oh, yeah, I'm just going to write WW for wasn't watching here. But I'm the same way, Ben. Now, if I miss something, I have to go back and like restructure what happened in the inning and reconstruct it, almost like you're an official scorer trying to figure out, like, all right, would this have been a hit or an error? Would this be a, a run that's earned or unearned? Um, I am looking at the very first uh, professional baseball game that I scored uh, as a broadcaster, which was April 9, 2009, uh, the Wilmington Blue Rocks against the Myrtle Beach Pelicans. And in that game, uh, Mike Moustakis started for Wilmington and, uh, was at third base and batted third. There are a few other guys who made the big leagues from that team, but Mike Moustakis is definitely the one, uh, who stands out. And on the other side, uh, for Myrtle Beach, Freddie Freeman and Jason Hayward hit back to back in that lineup. Jason Hayward hit third. Freddie Freeman hit cleanup. Um, and there were, there were a lot of good guys on that team that I remember from, uh, you know their their days uh, as young guys who then made the big leagues. Craig Kimbrell pitched in that game. Craig Kimball, I remember, really struggled that first season uh, that we had him in in Myrtle Beach, and then he came back through the next year and just blew through uh, high A on the way to the majors. But yeah, that was the first game that I ever scored as a as a professional broadcaster, and I remember I just had like a store bought scorebook, and now like I uh, thanks to former Altoona Curve radio guy Mike Pasanisi, I've got like you know, pages that Mike actually made with the things that he likes while keeping score of games. And so I have my own scorebooks made at like a FedEx office, you know, from this PDF that Mike sent me. Uh, So that's pretty cool. How Uh, many innings does it have? uh, It's got 15, I think, which nowadays is like, you know, the rarity of using 15 innings in a scorebook anymore, right? 12 is that never happens. Yeah. I did uh multiple 20 or 20 plus inning games when I was a, a broadcaster in the minor leagues. And now like I'll never see knockwood. I'll never see a 15 plus inning game again, probably. <laughs> um Sam, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I try to keep score uh generally. I'm usually
0: that guy in the press box who just uses the ones that they give you with like the pre-printed out lineups on them, which are not very helpful. I know many of you listening have not been in a press box. They don't have like the diamond made out on them. It's just a blank space. So you have to kind of make it yourself to say a guy finished at second base. Um, It's more or less more for me to just keep track of those special plays that you're talking about, like, because I'm not usually broadcasting. It's I I did it once or twice last year, but um, and in those instances, I'm trying to keep score as much as I can. But if I'm writing the game, I need to remember okay, this is what happened on this double. So I'll put a a little star next to it or be like, this is where the important thing happened. Um, I think game day has kind of changed scorekeeping forever because you can just as easily go back to the box score. And it's not just a box score. It's exactly what happened. It was a double to left center. It was a bun single. It was whatever. Um, That is so much easier to just refer to now. And you have it in your pocket. Um, it's not something I do, but I think for fans, I think that's kind of changed that conversation, but also technology has changed it another way. Cause I was watching, um, uh, you know, going to some games last year and seeing some broadcasters use a scorekeeping app. Yeah. Where I'm you just say before. it was a double to right center and it'll automatically file it. And it seems like it takes a little bit longer, but like the more you get used to it, it's just two clicks and you're done. And then it all files there and then you can save it on your iPad or your laptop or whatever. And it just seems so efficient. And I I love that that's a mixture of the two, right? Like the idea of scorekeeping still existing and not just going off game day is still out there. But we have technology at our fingertips. We might as well use it. Um,
1: I I will say um, there is a different style of scorekeeping that I And I think it was uh, James Smythe, who I worked with uh, in the minors, who is now a a statistician with the Yes Network. If you ever watch a a Yankees game on on Yes, um, you know, Paul O'Neill and Michael K and all those guys will just drop the name James. Like, oh, James gave us this name. That's James Smythe. And James is one of the, the smartest and most dedicated guys that I've ever worked with. But James had a way. It was almost like a shorthand version of keeping score. And I had no idea what it was like looking at the Rosetta Stone to me. Like I had no idea what he was doing. It was like, oh, a single is like a I'll just draw like a horizontal line from left to right. And then if you double, well, that's like you put a cross and like there was something I have no clue what he was doing. With me, it's just like you draw the little diamond. When a guy scores, I color it in. You know, it's like I I it's like a preschool activity, especially with a lot of colors. It's very important for my my puny brain. I find it really tactile and fun.
0: Yeah, I will say I have, like, I think it's my own style, and I have no idea where I picked this up. But if it's a double, I'll put, like, the two lines, go into second base, but I'll circle them. Oh, interesting. Which is probably not what you're supposed to do. So, if, like, that guy scores, it gets a little confusing because you're like, there's a bubble here, but it's also colored in.
1: But white. I kind of like that because it links, like, you know, these two things happened in the same moment. Right. And I have no, literally no idea where I picked that up.
0: Like, I think that was just my six-year-old brain just being like, this makes sense to me. Um, so I don't That know. really it's
1: is cool. I, I like how, you know, when you are keeping score, you develop your own things that work for you. Do you think like, oh, this is something that that helps me understand better what happened in this circumstance. I think that's very cool about keeping score. And it really is like a, it's like a little art form for for people. Um, yeah. yeah, I do appreciate that there are technical means that you can do it via an app. You can, I remember seeing a guy doing it in the Carolina League in 2011 on an iPad. I think he was like the first person that I knew who had an iPad in the minor leagues. And I was like, is this? And I, for me, it felt not to be all like boomer back in my day. Uh, but like, I do like the aspect of just doing it, you know, writing it down, still doing something in that old school manner, but it is very cool that there are things developed now where like, if you wanted to do it on a tablet, you can do it. That is really cool.
2: Yeah. And you know, sometimes you don't know how it's going to be scored. So, you know, question I always ask, say a guy gets a hit ends up on second base, but you don't know, you know, the outfielder might've bobbled it. You don't know if he you know, how they're going to score it. So, you know, the question that comes up then is to be or not to be.
3: Uh, Oh, man.
1: (laughs) I really thought I wish everybody could see Sam's face right now. I wish I wish this was a a visual podcast. Everybody could see Sam's. If you if you had a picture of a thousand yard stare of somebody questioning all of their life decisions, that's Sam's face. Uh, yeah, I seem
2: to inspire that in Sam <laughs>
1: that, was, that was really good though But it is, I mean, in keeping score That's one thing that has always confused me about Like with an app, if you're doing it, you know Just writing it in a scorebook, you can go back later and write Like, okay, E7 Or, you know, 2B uh, But with an app it's like, <laughs> Do you put it in there as a double And then like you have to go back and like And correct it later, I don't really get of that I sound so much like my mom But what is an app? How does that work? Um, I'm sure there's an edit button on an app. I'm sure they figured it out. I would imagine. But like that to me, because I get so much anxiety if I have done something wrong. And it used to be the worst when I had to do game day. Because when you're inputting stuff, if you input something wrong... And then the inning starts to get away from you. Like while you're working on getting that fix, you're also like frantically keeping notes of what's happening and then trying to fix the thing in game. That's that's horrible. I don't even want to think about when I had to do yeah, that. Yeah, no, I, I have that. so
0: much respect for people who have to do that. I've seen things go slightly awry. And yeah. Just think of how they back up in the moment. And... Yeah.
1: Oh, it is not easy. It is yeah. not easy. Um, but that is very cool. And uh, Ben, was there anything that stood out as far as like the coolest responses that you got from people of like how they learned or what they do?
2: Well, I think the coolest is the one I'm featuring this week that was just a standalone kind of essay about, you know, a guy learning to score from his granddad. Literally, now it's a kind of a phrase kind of used in a more mocking or sarcastic way. But, you know, for those keeping score at home, kind of like wink, wink. No one keeps score at home. I but do always evening, follow
1: that with who keeps score at home? Like, right. You oh, no keep score at home. And I'm like, what kind of dork is home? Yeah,
2: keep- no, no one can say that with a straight face. But it was great to get this. Like, <laughs> you know, this meant so much to me and my grandfather teaching me. And we just use like, you know, a notebook with like yellow pages and use a ruler to like make the – uh Line up out every night and then turn on the Yankees game. He was living in like northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, so it's a whole saga that begins with that. But I got a lot of different responses. I mean, it was phrased of kind of like, do you keep score? And no one wrote in to be like, no, I don't. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, everyone keeps score, it's great. Um Clearly that's not the case, but I think the people who are part of that club were really into it. And there were different kinds of responses. You know, people like to use the notes section, you know, to record different things, maybe like a concession item or who won a mascot race. Um, You know, some people, I did get one response that said, I don't keep score anymore because of, I can see it online. So now I use my phone to like, look up more about like the guys who are playing and uh, while also keeping an eye like on game day and the updated score that way. So there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, Also in the newsletter, I'll ask a modified version of it to you guys real quick. Um, You know, have a trivia question. Um, You guys probably know the bit of trivia that in 1987, Ken Griffey Jr. hit his first professional home run at Everett Memorial Stadium. Now, Everett is now a Mariners affiliate, but Ken Griffey Jr. um, hit his first professional home run on the road at Everett. They were then a Giants affiliate, and he was a member of the Bellingham Mariners, and that was in 1987. 21 years prior, another member of the another member of the 500 home run club hit his first professional home run in the Northwest League on the road, just like Ken Griffey Jr. did. So 1966, who hit his first professional home run as a member of the Northwest League on the road?
1: I was really proud of myself at the outset of this because I thought you were going to ask what team was Ken Griffey Jr. playing? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. so was I. I was (laughs) like, Bellingham, Bellingham, Bellingham. (laughs) Bellingham. I remembered it like two seconds before you said Bellingham. And I was like, I'm going to get this. And then dang it. 1966 yeah a member of the 500 home run club hit his first professional home run in everett on the road no no, just
2: in the northwest league in the
1: northwest league on the road
2: i'll tell you it was in eugene at bethel park which is long defunct and um he was a member of the long defunct lewiston bronx which i guess is short for broncos by one letter but um Yeah, he started his career with the Lewiston Bronx in the Northwest League in his second game ever. was on the road playing the Eugene Emeralds and hit his first home run, 1966.
1: 1966, which means it was a career predominantly in the 70s and 80s. That's correct. Um, I'm trying to think of like big power hitters of the 70s and 80s. Sam Uh, is racking his brain right now. Yeah, oh man. A, I just had
2: it and now it went away from me. A 500 home run guy oh. played, I think he debuted in the 60s, but played through in you know well into the eighties. Oh what oh I, it's, it's I have a thought. guess. Yeah, four he played for
1: four teams. Yeah. Uh oh, this is so oh I have this a guess. Is is yes? The same, do you want me to guess? Yes, or do you want to wait? No, I want you to guess. Is it Reggie Jackson? It is Reggie Jackson. Oh, yeah. well done. Reggie. Oh I oh, got. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm trying to think of like power hitters in the 70s which I don't know why but like I don't I don't think of the 70s and the 80s as like big time power era. Um which you know there were power hitters but I guess you know being a child of the 90s you know like there's
2: yeah, I mean, when Reggie Jackson retired with 563, that was in the top.
1: Yeah, I was going to say top five, probably top
2: five or six at that time. Man, but, um, now he's way down the list with yeah. you know, everything that's happened in the ensuing. Decade. My first
1: guess was Willie McCovey, but that was probably a little too early. A little early, I would yeah. say. Yeah. Um, wow, that was a good one, though. That's a very good question.
2: Yeah, I came across that incidentally and was like, Oh, that's that's a good, good trivia,
1: Bellingham that's the answer. Ellingham is the answer. All right, Ben, well, we've also got a uh, a new alternate identity to discuss. Uh, this is one that had slipped below, above my radar. I don't know, somewhere outside of my radar, but it comes from Wisconsin and I'm going to need you to explain it.
2: Yeah, I needed to uh, do a little research in order to understand this one. I would definitely say it was below your radar because it involves... Uh, ice fishing um and i will say this 4%. is a general thing i feel like teams press releases with new alternate identities have to um should have more detail to them um because i think a lot of time they just assume the locals know what's up but like for those of us who don't i'm always like wait what so i had to do some research on this but the wisconsin timber rattlers as well as their sister team summer collegiate the Fond du lac dock spiders um They will both be suiting up in July for one game as the Lake Winnebago shanty men and the shanty men. And this is a reference to ice fishing on Lake Winnebago. And the shanties are what you fish out of. So, you know, I I had to learn about this, but the shanties, you know, they can be towed or hauled. And so they're hauled, they're towed out on the ice and they have, you know, open bottoms. And um, you cut a hole in the ice, and then you fish for sturgeon. Sturgeon are gigantic and Huge prehistoric. Yeah. Um, and the ice fishing season is you know very regulated. Only takes place for two weeks in February, which is why they announced it now, in conjunction with um, Lake Winnebago ice fishing season. But it's not just ice fishing. It's spearing. This is how you catch the sturgeon. It's spear fishing. So this is the first uh, alternate identity ever devised around spear fishing and released in conjunction with spearing season. So I watched a video online and it, it's kind of nuts. So the spears, which are, look like a trident, or at least in the video I watched, you know, this three-pronged spear with ropes attached to it. You just hu- you just hang out in your shanty, probably have some drinks, and just look for these sturgeon going underneath. Um, and then you throw a spear at them uh, to catch catch it. And um, so that is how the Lake Winnebago um, uh, shanty men came about. And uh, that is a, a unique identity. And that is what I like about alternate identities in general. When you can go on a journey, even though I do say teams in general, not just the Timber Rattlers, should maybe have a little more uh, background info in their press releases. I, I like the journey of discovery of like, I knew nothing about Spear fishing and shanties and Lake Winnebago and sturgeons. Um, but pretty cool. The shanty men,
1: this seems like very small odds that, like, I would imagine Lake Winnebago is quite large. Did the sturgeon just swim up under the holes that regularly that you can just stab at them with a spear? It seems like a big that's like you know, needle in a haystack for. Attempting to spear. I get like throwing bait down and, and trying to fish for them. But just like waiting there with a trident to spear the sturgeon, that seems seems like a lot of time waiting. Well, Tyler, you, you know this as
0: well as we do. You've been fishing maybe more than anybody else on this podcast. What's yeah. the number one thing you need when you go fishing? Patience. Patience. <laughs> and beer. <laughs> and beer.
1: Patience and beer. All right. That's true. Yeah. So I
2: think like a lot of fishing excursions, it's just a chance to hang out with your friends on the ice, have some drinks. I'm sure there's been many fruitless days of uh, spear fishing on Lake Winnebago, but that is how it's done. And then obviously the thrill of doing it, these sturgeon are gigantic. Yeah. And uh, I was glad to see it's only a two week period. It's really regulated because I don't know really about the overall health of sturgeons, but I did see like a New York times article recently that was just kind of like, you know, sturgeon have survived for like a million years, millions of years. Will they survive us? And I was like, Oh no, <laughs> you know, like, um, but it's just two weeks. I hope it's, you know, like obviously it's a self-sustaining population. Um, and, uh, it's definitely a Wisconsin thing, a Lake Winnebago thing. And,
1: uh, they really are terrifyingly large too. If you Google Lake Winnebago sturgeon, you pull up the, uh, the Google images tab, they are, uh, they're horrifying. They really are. They're like prehistoric creatures. It's like something that you would imagine somebody pulled out of a, you know, a dry riverbed somewhere. And it's, oh, this is a this is an 80 million year old fossil. But no, these still exist in uh, in Wisconsin. Um, yeah. So- and
2: as I noted in my newsletter, this is not the most uh, primitive fishing based um, alternate identity in minor league baseball, because Tulsa, the drillers, a couple years ago introduced the noodlers. Oh, right. yeah, and that is for the art and science of catching a catfish with your hands. You kind of like put your hand in its mouth and like catch it up like through the gills.
0: Yeah, uh, so there's horrible. So
2: yeah, now we have spearfishing in Wisconsin <laughs> through the uh, Lake Winnebago shanty men, and we have uh, catfishing in uh, Oklahoma with the noodlers. I think noodling is only like legal in fifteen yeah. or sixteen states. <laughs>
1: I think um, I do remember that as a detail. And,
2: uh, I don't know how many people are chomping at the bit to do it illegally, but um <laughs> that's uh, that takes some skill and some guts to just dive under the water and uh, put your hand in a catfish's mouth. That's a new to
1: wrangle it, yeah, wrangle it. Uh, yeah, the next step is for some team to come out with an identity that just like goes back even further, and it's just like the, you know, uh inland empire cavemen who throw rocks at fish like that'll be the the last one Uh, i hope that's
2: what it is the name of the team is (laughs) the cavemen who throw rocks at fish
1: there's no actual term for you just have to describe it that way be a very lengthy jersey um all right ben well we uh coming up in a little bit we are going to hear from pittsburgh pirates prospect jp massey but before we do that we are uh, headed for a conversation on uh, a fun initiative that's coming up out west. To give us the uh, the lowdown on one of our interviews for this week's episode.
2: Yeah, we're uh, heading heading west, young men, uh, to the Central Valley to Fresno, California, where the Grizzlies, who uh, you know, have kind of set the template for uh, non game day events with the Taco Truck Throwdown, and uh, we've covered that on the show before. Uh, they have now a spinoff of the Taco Truck Throwdown called tequila fest and it's taking place in may and uh the reason i reached out to the team and ended up speaking with um jonathan bravo johnny bravo the grizzlies i forget his official job title but uh you know marketing and uh media guy the reason i reached out and we'll, we'll be talking to him, is this tequila fest in may has rick ross ti and lil john on the bill so by the context of minor league ballpark entertainers uh, that's uh, a pretty uh, pretty big uh, triumvirate at the top of the bill. So, want to get the lowdown on uh, everything they got planned and how Tequila Fest came about, and that's why we're going to Fresno to talk to uh, Johnny Bravo.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what?
2: The director of marketing and communication for the Fresno Grizzlies, Uh,
3: Jonathan
4: Johnny. I can't decide, but thank you for (laughs) this. Yeah, thank you so much for having us on. You know, it's kind of crazy that baseball is right around the corner, but you know, we're we're so excited.
2: It is right around the corner, and uh, in a way, it always is. Even when it's far away, it's right around the corner. It's uh, it's always looming just behind us, like a I don't want to say a horror movie villain because we look forward to it, but it's always uh, it's always lurking. Um, But we're not here. We're talking, we're here to talk about something happening during the baseball season, Saturday, May 20th at Chuck Chansey Park in Fresno. But this is not a baseball game we're talking about. We're talking about Tequila Fest. And, uh, you know, listeners of this podcast might know we've we've done segments on, or you just might know the Grizzlies. They've been doing the taco truck throwdown for uh, many years, um, well over a decade. And uh, this in a way is maybe a this came about as an offshoot of the taco mm-hmm. truck throwdown but wow the tequila fest it's featuring ti rick ross and lil john in addition to i'm sure lots of tequila yep there's a lot to get into here but let's just start with the basics so you know how did this uh come about to go from the taco truck throwdown and do a new standalone event with tequila
4: yeah, well, you kind of hit the nail right on the head. You know, we've done Taco Trek Throwdown for what is going into its 12th year at this point. Um, that, you know, it's such a strong brand. There's so many exciting things about it. You know, everyone, or there's so many people across the nation who know about it, that in order to bring in this New event under the Taco Truck Throwdown umbrella was just an opportunity we couldn't pass up, right? And like you said, that lineup is incredible, right? You've got T.I., Rick Ross, Lil Jon. The amount of people who know those individuals alone and will come out just to see them perform is huge. Then you throw in tequila and vendors and VIP areas and cigar bar, the whole nine yards. I mean, we're going to activate the entire ballpark for this event. It's really an amazing opportunity on May 20th out here at the ballpark that we just couldn't be more excited about
2: yeah definitely wanting to get, get get into the music but let's start with the tequila because it is tequila fest after all um you know how do you put that element together with different vendors um you know different tastings you know how is it going to be set up for uh you know in terms of the vendors you're working with and also how the fans can you know enjoy responsibly enjoy tequila on this night
4: yes absolutely yeah you know again going back to taco truck throwdown we have a lot of experience putting on these kinds of events with a lot of different vendors right so uh, in that kind of aspect it's uh, you know something we know how to perform really really well so at this point it's just moving from tacos to tequila um so you know there's going to be a ton of different tasting there's going to be margaritas of course you know there's there's not necessarily going to be the voting component that you have with taco truck throwdown but i I guarantee our fans are going to say oh you know you got to go check out this fender because they've got you know the best margarita or anything like that um so it's really exciting you know kind of twist on um the throwdown they Twist on something that we've never really done before, right? You know, we've in years past added the Michelada throwdown to taco truck throwdown. We've had, you know, different alcohol um, avenues that we've experienced with that event. Um, So now having an event that's pretty much solely focused on it is really exciting for us.
2: Yeah. And I know you don't look at necessarily as a tequila fest as like, oh, an educational experience, but Like anything, there's a lot to learn with tequila. Whenever I order it, I always wish I kind of knew more. I know there's the different I'm always forgetting the words for the the amount of time it's been aged. Um, You know, will there be, uh, you know, learning opportunities as
4: well uh, at, at tequila fest. You know, I'm sure there will be, you know, all of the vendors who are going to be out there are, you know, very knowledgeable of their craft, of course. Um, And, you know, it's I'm kind of in the same boat as you is I really don't know that much more than the surface level. So I'm excited to be educated as well and to get to try all the different offerings that we have, you know, here in the Central Valley.
2: Yeah. And you've had some you know pretty big names at the taco truck throwdown uh, entertainment wise as the years have gone on. Uh, But it seems like this triumvirate you have for tequila fest is like a whole nether level again ti rick ross lil john um you know and these are all artists who come with i'm sure you know substantial guarantees in terms of how much it takes to get into the ballpark um i imagine you know an, an outlay of cash um you know much more than the typical minor league performer you know what is it what gives you that confidence as an organization you know to to put so much of an investment into this knowing that
4: it'll, it'll come back through the event itself yeah, absolutely. I mean, you kind of set yourself that the headliners speak for themselves, right? I mean, those three alone, you hear those three names just by themselves, and it's massive, right? And then you put them all together. I mean, the promoters and the artists camps, when we told them, hey, this is what we're looking at, they were shocked. They were like, Oh, my gosh, this is so cool to have those three individuals on the same stage in one night is massive. Um, You know, we've got a lot of really great partners involved with it: uh, Estrella Jalisco, Miklo Vultra, Fresno Street Eats who are helping provide the, um, you know, food truck side of things, um, Fresno Suit Outlet, uh, all sorts of really great people who are helping put on what is a massive event, right? But we know that, you know, our fans are going to be thrilled to get to come see these people. And they really proved it when we went on sale on Friday morning, you know, it it was pretty phenomenal to see everyone rush to the website, buy their tickets, you know, tickets absolutely flew off the shelves even in like the first 10-15 minutes we were like okay you know this is it's a really good place we feel really really good about this and it's really all anyone's talking about in fresno you know you turn on the news you go to the websites um news websites and it's tequila fest oh my gosh did you see who's coming oh you've got to go to this event because tickets are going to sell fast and they really are like if fans need to buy their tickets early because this thing will probably sell out
2: yeah. And in terms of internal discussions, I mean, you've got three big names. Um, you know, were those the, the first choices or, do you know, you wanted to go in, you know, that hip hop direction? You know, what are the decision making process and, you know, ultimately, you know, ending up with uh, with these three headliners?
4: Yeah, absolutely. You know, TI was kind of the first um domino to fall so to speak. You know, he was the one that it was like, yeah, you know, he's our top billing headliner. He's, you know, one that's really going to draw and then after that it was Rick Ross, everyone knows Rick Ross. Everyone knows Lil john Um so it all kind of fell into place all at once so to speak. Um and again, you know, when we went to the artist camps and we, you know, went to TI and said, "Hey, these are the people we're considering." They were like, Wow, that is a really, really cool lineup. So we've obviously all got those three. Um, we also have tons of local acts. You know, uh, Central Valley has tons of local musical talent, um, both as DJs, hip hop groups, and kind of a you know variety of different, um, different musical acts. So they'll be sprinkled in throughout the evening as well. Um, and, uh, you know, it will be full on entertainment from the time gates open at 430 up until TI finishes his set at the end of the evening.
2: Yeah, and I guess it goes without saying, this is a, a hokey observation, but you have Lil Jon on the bill, one of his signature s- songs being Shots. Naturally. <laughs> this, is te- this is Tequila Fest. I mean, it seems pretty likely. I know you can't probably dictate an artist set list, but it seems pretty likely that uh, people will be able to drink, te- do a shot of tequila while Lil I, John I'd be
4: pretty fun. stunned if that doesn't happen, Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, talk about, you know, making memories at the ballpark. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, for sure. And um, you know, this has been a thing. I mean, I think the Grizzlies have been pioneers in it, obviously, especially with the taco truck throwdown. But I think something that's more and more important to minor league teams. I mean, yes, you have well, triple AAA case, how many home games? What like seventy five home games now? Yes. Um, a lot, yeah. And those are all entertainment events in their own rights. But You know, how important, you know, as a business for the overall organization's business model, is it to have these outside events that, you know, draw people outside of baseball?
4: Absolutely. You know, it's huge and it's not only big for us on a business side, but it's also a source of pride for us, right? To be able to bring massive names like this and cement chancy park not only as you know a, a place for entertainment in fresno but the central valley and california as a whole i mean these three acts are coming to the heart of downtown fresno and that's something that we just take so much pride in on top of the fact that you know the savannah bananas are coming later in the year we've had um you know pro soccer games uh you know uh, uh, mexican um professional soccer games uh in years past tons of huge huge concerts out here taco truck throw down of course. Um, but it's extremely important to us as an organization. And, you know, it's something that the city of Fresno is extremely passionate about as well, of showing that, uh, you know, Fresno, especially downtown, is a hotbed for entertainment and can really hold massive events like this, you know, week in and week out. It's something that we take a ton of pride in.
2: Yeah, so there might be some, I'm sure, some details to figure out still a few months away from the event. But, you know, if you could kind of lay... Create an image in our minds. Uh, you know, Saturday, May twentieth, fans walk into the ballpark, um, or even outside of the ballpark before they go in. Mm-hmm. What is what is going to be the scene at the ballpark in terms of you know where the stage is, where the vendors are, and you know how you get all these different elements together into one space.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we're very, very blessed to have a very substantially sized ballpark, you know, so we will make sure to make use of that entire area, you know, we're going to activate the entire ballpark from our uh, Fresno social area, which um, is our free standing bar to our You know, a cantina area, which will almost certainly host some of the vendors, Um, Tulare Plaza, which is an area still in the ballpark gates, but on the outside of kind of the main part of the ballpark, we'll have vendors, our cigar lounge, we're going to have the field. Or we're going to have the stage, excuse me, in center field um, like we do for Taco Truck Throwdown and many of our other events. Um, So, you know, fans will actually get to come down on the baseball field and enjoy these great events. You know, we're going to have a VIP section that's a little bit closer to the stage, completely private with private bars, um, lounge chairs, you know, really, really that feeling of luxury when you walk into the VIP area, some taco truck or some food trucks on the field, uh, a lot more up on the concourse. um, And then vendors kind of throughout the ballpark. So, you know, anywhere you look, you're going to see that. Wow. This is a big event. There's, you know, tons going on and, Oh, I need to make sure I go over here because I've got to check out these vendors or, Ooh, I really like that food truck. I've got to go check it out. And then of course the pinnacle of it all in center field on that stage.
2: Yeah. And, one of the cool things about the taco truck throwdown, um, you know, is it highlights these local taco trucks. So, you know, <laughs> it's a point of pride um, not just to be at the event, but to win it. It gives people their own sort of points of you know, a starting point to explore when they visit Fresno, um, all the different taco trucks that they can seek out. Um, is there going to be an element of that with the tequila fest, you think where it kind of spurs uh, people being like, Oh, I can go here and get this kind of tequila or this restaurant serves the best margarita. Um, you know, do you think there's going to be a lot of you know post-event local engagement on that front?
4: Yeah, I really hope so. You know, it's one of the things that we think about whenever we bring any sort of event to the ballpark. Is you know how can it benefit the community, right? And not only with this event at its surface, you know, it's bringing out you know probably ten to fifteen thousand people to downtown Fresno. That's huge for our surrounding businesses. And then when you talk about the vendors who will be inside the ballpark, getting to engage with all of these visitors, you know, I I really hope that it will help lift these businesses up. Uh, Because again, at its core, that's one of the things our organization is most passionate about. You know, we are very proud to be at the core of downtown Fresno's revitalization process. And anything we can do to help lift up not only the businesses around us, but in the Central Valley as a whole is, you know, really a source of pride for us.
2: Yeah. And while obviously a lot of attention is being focused on this event now coming up on May 20th, you know, are the wheels still turning on, you know, what is another thing kind of, if not totally specific to Fresno, but the Fresno you know, has deep roots within, um, you know, what, what directions you could go from here with uh, tacos, tequila, other elements of Fresno culture.
4: Always, you know, we're always thinking, okay, what's big, what's next. You know, obviously we're, you know, definitely focused on Taco Truck Throwdown 12, um, which is an extremely exciting thing to be able to say that, you know, we're in our 12th year of this phenomenal event. Um, So, you know, full steam ahead of that. Um, And then of course the baseball season too, you know, with, It being only a couple months away, our home opener being April 11th, it's, you know, full steam ahead on that, making sure that we're truly prepped, ready to welcome fans back to the ballpark. Our our field actually is not much of a field right now. It's um, we're getting it resurfaced, which is an exciting thing. You know, that's the first time in our ballparks history. So you look out there and it's a bunch of dirt right now, which is really odd for a baseball field. Um, But, you know, really full steam ahead and, you know, constant planning for what's coming up this year, but also years in the future.
2: Yeah, and I will note that um, Johnny, as he was speaking, was literally looking to his left, out his office window, you know, uh, on the field itself. And um, on one hand, we've seen the field in that not done condition. It says, oh, there's opening day is not right around the corner. But (laughs) (laughs) here we are in February, AAA opening day, March 31st, Fresno Grizzlies home opener, April 11th, Tequila Fest, May 20th taco truck Throwdown 12 that won't be for later in the year
4: correct that's uh... probably in october um we haven't officially announced a date yet but in past couple of years it's been around october
2: yeah so lots going on in fresno as always but uh yeah if you're in the area or want to make a special trip i would love to i'm not sure if i can make it but may 20th <laughs> uh tequila fest with ti rick ross and lil john very interested to see how that event goes and uh, from a minor league ballpark perspective it's a about as big as it gets a so really cool thing to see um jonathan bravo johnny bravo director of marketing and communication for the fresno grizzlies thanks so much for joining me thanks so much for having me on man
3: Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC
0: Pro. Well, our thanks to Ben and Johnny Bravo for talking about the Fresno Tequila Fest in that last segment. We're seconding it to a second interview segment this week on the show before the show. Uh, Tyler and I chatted with J.P. Massey, a A Pittsburgh Pirates pitching prospect. You may not have heard much about JP in the past. He was a seventh round pick last year out of the University of Minnesota. Um, But we had a lot to talk about what it's like going through a first- offseason what it's like trying to prepare for a first spring training Uh, jp has experience in the dream series with mlb and mlb develops we touch on that a little bit and he hails from chicago what is it like trying to be a pitcher coming through a cold weather state now he's he talked to us from arizona he's getting set to go to bradenton florida very shortly here's our conversation with jp massey Well, we're very pleased this week to be joined on the show before the show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball by Pirates pitching prospect JP Massey. JP, you are currently in Arizona, which is very different from what you are used to. What what is the start to the offseason or what has the offseason been like? We're basically at the end of
4: it here.
3: Yeah, we're at the end of it. It's kind of coming around really fast. This is uh, my first spring training approaching. And so. Just getting adjusted to what the offseason schedule is like is a little bit different, but it's been fantastic. Like you said, I'm in Arizona right now. I've been training with a great group of guys. Uh, One of my teammates, Clint Priester, Alec Thomas, Donovan Williams, etc. So I've had a lot of professional guys around me, some that have made it to the big leagues so they can give me some advice on how to approach this whole process. But we've just been competing, trying to get better and prepare to dominate this season, hopefully.
0: Yeah, th- I mean, those are some good names to drop. Alec Thomas being another Chicago area guy, Quinn Priester being another Pirates guy. What have they told you about, like, what to expect about a first full season?
3: Honestly, it, it kind of remains the same. Just continue to work hard and be prepared for anything. Obviously, when you get down there, it's going to be extremely competitive. It's going to be a lot of moving parts. And so just try to always stay attentive, be prepared. And whenever they give you an opportunity to, you know, show your, your talent and show how, the hard work you put in, to go out there and, and dominate. Give it your best.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're talking to you here now in early February, like spring training. Technically, happens this month on the big league side. Where are you at in terms of preparedness? Like, what does your throwing program look like? What are you doing right now?
3: I'm I'm ready. I'm excited. I've uh, <laughs> we've been throwing for a while now. Started throwing bullpens a few weeks ago, and so. Yeah, it's been it's been a while. I, I didn't get to play after I got drafted. They basically kind of shut me down and just had me throwing sides just because of the amount of innings I threw in college. And so it's been a while since I've got to see some hitters in the box. And so I'm I'm kind of biting that biting at the wood biting at the chop right there, ready to get to it and get after it.
0: Yeah, and when you are throwing right now, what are you focused on? Is it just waking up the arm again? Is there certain pitches you're working on? How does that work?
3: Yeah, this off season I, I've been taking a, a real meticulous approach as to what I'm trying to do, not trying to overdo anything. Uh, we worked extremely hard and really solidifying my lower half to make sure I have a solid base. So when it gets to that time for me to, you know, unwind and unleash the baseball, I, I'm in the right position to do so effectively. And so that's pretty much been the whole focus for, for myself the offseason, just trying to get my lower half in a solid position to where I can just let the stuff play and I can I can try to be on top of hitters every single at bat.
0: Yeah, for sure. And and you know when we're talking about where you are now compared to where you were a year ago in Minnesota, uh, it's it's crazy. But first off, being in Scottsdale, you're wearing a short shirts <laughs> shirt. It's it's very different from that aspect. But how how is that transition going from you know right now you're basically preparing for games if you were still in college versus now you have to prepare to play into August and September.
3: Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a difference in, in how you approach the off season. I'd say for pro ball, it's more of a marathon, whereas college seems more like a sprint. Um, in college, you know, this time they're, they're getting ready for games within the next couple of weeks. And so you're trying to be as close as you can to, you know, dominant and, and full go when the season starts. Whereas You know, pro ball, you still have spring training and it's a long season. And so you have to properly prepare your body to be able to endure a full season and stay healthy. Hopefully, you know, knock on wood, I haven't been through it yet, but I've had some people like like we said earlier with Clint Priester being my roommate, somebody that can stay on top of me and kind of guide me as to what he's been through and what he's seen to help him get through the process each and every year.
0: All right, JP, well, we're talking about like what you were doing last year in Minnesota. Take me through that last year with the Gophers. I mean, you're going potentially into a draft year. What was that season like for you last spring?
3: Last year was, was I don't know, I'd say it was different. You know, I was going into a draft year. It's my second time. And I just come off a very disappointing season for myself personally, um, statistically and mentally, just some of the things that I was doing on the field and so. Going into the last year, I wanted to take kind of a step back from the game in terms of just evaluating where I am as a person. And I was able to go into my, my senior year of college, get my degree, which meant a lot to myself and my family. I'm sorry, I have a B right here. And me and Bs don't get along. So if I'm freaking out, and give me I just saw the
1: silhouette of it come in, and I was like, oh, what is happening?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I know. But last year, like I said, I, I was able to get my degree. I was able to go out there and kind of just enjoy the game again, kind of have fun and get back to what the reason I started playing. And so – Now, being in pro ball, it's it's really exciting because it kind of gets right back to it, to where I felt like I had used last year as a platform to get in the right spot mentally, and now I'm ready to go compete. It's always fun facing the best players in the world, and that's that's what we're getting yourself into when you get into the professional side of the business.
1: JP. Let's go back one summer uh, prior to your your pro debut year. You get to pitch uh, in the MLB draft league in twenty twenty one and uh, you pitch for the the West Virginia Black Bears and uh, a, a place that, you know, we all as uh, people who have been familiar with the minor leagues been so familiar with. Uh, over the the history of that franchise but I want to know what the draft league was like for you it's such a new endeavor that was the first season for it in 2021 and for those of us on the outside looking in it looks like a really cool initiative and a cool new platform for players who are in that position going into draft years um, but what was that whole summer like for you getting a chance to, to pitch and kind of uh, not exactly pro ball but something that kind of has the feel of pro ball
3: Yeah, that summer, honestly, it was one of the best summers of my life. And it was for a plethora of reasons, of course, but I was able to get out there. I had a lot of friends that I knew from high school on that team that I hadn't been able to play with or even really be around for a long time. And so it was, it kind of just brought that kid back out of me where I was going, showing up to the field. I was excited. Like I, I was just happy to be around my friends, whether I was starting or not that day, it was always something new. And so we had a great coaching staff. And, you know, like you said, it kind of plays right into pro ball where we were on a different schedule. It was my first time throwing every five days. So when you have to make that Tuesday start and then bounce back for that Sunday, it's, it's a different beast as opposed to college where it's every seven days. And so it was honestly, it was a great platform for everyone to showcase their talent. And then for me, it was just an opportunity for to get back within myself. And I had some success. It wasn't perfect there either. And it, it provided me some opportunities to go into pro ball a year earlier. But like I said, last year was just, vital for me to use as a reset. So when I get into pro ball, you know, I'm in the right place to not only execute what I'm trying to do, but hopefully have success while doing it.
1: How much does it help when you, you get an opportunity, like you said, to sort of hit that reset button and you rediscover just the things that you love about the game and the things that make you happy about the game. I know you've played this game for a long time in in a lot of different spots, you know, as a, as a high school player, as a college player, now getting into pro ball, when you find the things that you still love about it, uh, what does that do for you mentally?
3: it's rejuvenating. I mean, this game, it's it's stressful at times, and it's a game that's nonstop. I mean, you play almost every single day, so it's hard to get away from it. When when things are going bad, when you're struggling, it's hard to separate, you know, on field versus off the field, and so just to have that reset, it, it was, you know, like I said, it was a rejoice for me because now I'm, I'm back in a spot where visualizing the game is fun to me again. I'm seeing myself as having success. When I leave the field, I'm able to separate and be that person, and you know, for everyone, their paths are different. Some guys have success the whole way, some guys are up and down. And so you learn things throughout this process. And for me, like I said, I I was b- very blessed and fortunate to have success to where I had some projections, some rankings, things like that, which are super cool. And I was on the other side where I was, you know, failing miserably. And everybody that was coming to see my games weren't seeing much because I wasn't doing well. And within that, I'd say the the greatest. The greatest takeaway that I had personally was just evaluating who my character was off the field, just in general. When you're going good, it's easy to be whoever you want to be because everyone wants to be around you. Everyone loves that you're having success. But it's those days when you're not that guy, when you're not a superstar. Do people still want you to be their teammate? Do they want to be your friend? Are you a good you know, son? Whatever it may be. And so I just try to work hard to you know, impact everyone's life on a daily basis, whoever I'm around, whether it's a five minute convo or an hour just being that person to where no matter what I'm doing on or off the of field, people appreciate my presence.
0: I hope a lot of people are listening to that part because I think a lot of people could take away from something from that, whether it's baseball or just life in general. Um, but when you do hit that reset button uh, and you're going into last year, I mean, you had to show some stuff. Like you had to show stuff to get drafted where you did. Where do you feel like your arsenal took a jump last year?
3: Uh, my curveball. I started throwing it a lot last year, and it was a, a really good pitch for me. And it was something that kept hitters off balance and something that at a certain point guys were like, I, I don't really want to swing at this pitch. And so for, for me, I just started hammering it even more. And so uh, last year wasn't perfect by any means. I had outings that were great. I had outings that were awful and you have the ones in between. And I guess that's, that's anybody at any level. And, and it's about that middle area. How good are you or how bad are you? And so, like I said, last year I, I did some things and I was able to show myself some some things mentally like I'm able to get through this when times get tough can I bounce back and so I just feel like everything is a part of your journey you know I wish that I was number one overall draft pick Heck, I wish I was in the big leagues right now but that's not my path and I I know that the things that I've went through the trials and tribulations are only going to prepare me for when I get that opportunity within pro ball and so I just try to build off of it
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even those trials and tribulations you went through last year still ended up in a seventh round pick. Not a lot of guys taken get taken that early. Um, what conversations did you have with the Pirates after they took you and and they <laughs> decided to sign you and said like, "Hey, this is the pitcher we think you can be."
3: Yeah, so going into the draft, you're open minded. You don't you don't know what's going to happen. And the area guy Anthony that he he actually gave me a call the day of that I got drafted, day two. And it was kind of just like a, a friendly call, you know, just how are you doing, checking in. And so, you know, I kind of had an idea that maybe they were interested, but I didn't know. And so when I got the call, it was, it was an exciting feel. And I, the first Little League team I ever played for was the Pirates. And I'm sure hopefully one day, God willing, i make my debut and that picture will go viral. I'm saving that one. But uh, yeah, following, you know, it was, it was about who do I want to be? Who do I see myself being at the big league level? And that's something that I, I work on daily. And so with that, it took me taking another step back and evaluating where I can improve that. And so, like I said earlier through the offseason, I've been working on my lower half, trying to stabilize more to where I'm getting in consistent positions to execute every single time. Because when I'm on top of hitters, I know that I can be a dominant pitcher in this game. And so it's just always trying to find ways to build on that, build on that, and also build that confidence your, within yourself. It doesn't matter how good your stuff is. It doesn't matter how good your stat line is. If you're not confident, eventually you're going to get punched in the mouth. And so you got to be able to bounce back from that. And so that's some of the things that I've worked through this offseason, some of the things I've talked with the Pirates about. There's a few things in the arsenal that may have improved and may, may change this year, but, you know, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm just going to go out there and show it, and I don't want to try to give any advantages. I need all the help I can get in this sport
1: when you uh get into the routine jP of especially like you said you know in the draft league kind of learning how to go every five days um, and all of that now having access to you know big league resources, um, big league facilities, big league training staffs and coaching staffs and all of that what is something that you've learned so far? That you think, like, "Oh, I have not encountered this yet in my career, and this feels like it could be really helpful. Is there anything that stands out uh, from what the the pirates have communicated to you or what you've been able to do so far that's like, oh, this is this is part of being a big league ball player eventually. I think I can get this down.
3: Uh, I'd say the biggest thing, and and you get you get it in college as well, but I'd say routine. Like at this point when you realize like this is your career, this is literally what's putting food on the table for you. You you can't play around with it. Like now that I don't have the extra things like school and not, I don't want to say in the way, because school is valuable. Anyone listening, take school serious. It's highly important. You can't get anywhere without it. However, when you don't have classes, you don't have all extracurricular things, especially during the off season, you have no excuse not to be able to get your work in take care of your meals, take care of hydration, whatever it may be. And so it's just being a professional. That's the biggest thing, taking care of yourself, Understanding it's your career that at the end of the day, whether you're a Hall of Famer or you never, you know, make it to the big league, no one's going to care about your career more than you. And so you, you have to be a professional about it. And you got to take care of yourself.
1: JP, let's talk a little bit about your road um, getting, you know, not only to where you are now, pro ball, but also to Minnesota. You're a Chicago area kid, uh, grew up playing ball. Um, I know through the the White Sox Ace program, you won the RBI World Series in 2018. And the RBI program through Major League Baseball over the last couple of decades has taken so many different jumps and has grown by leaps and bounds. Uh, when you I would imagine uh, either you have or you will go back and, you know, see the kids who are now playing in those programs where you were five, 10 years ago uh, For for those kids, for young athletes to see, oh, here's a guy who's like me growing up in in my area, and now he's on a professional deal with a big league organization. What does that mean to you to know that you're kind of somebody who can go back and relate to uh, the the baseball world that you came from and say, like, hey, stick with it. You could find yourself, you know, pitching in the Big Ten. You could be a D1 guy. You could be a professional signee. That's got to be a really incredible feeling.
3: It honestly, it means the world. Um, It was actually – it's funny – uh, about a week ago, two weeks ago, uh, I had an opportunity to go to the Dream Series here in Arizona, which I was a part of the very first one. And so to see how far that event has come, it's, I mean, it's leaps and bounds. I tell everybody what we had, I was extremely grateful and appreciative. But with the resources and the people they have walking around that place now, it's, it's unbelievable. And so I was able to go back. It was people way bigger than I am, Hunter Green, jo- Jordan Adele. Whoever it may be, Justin and Dunn. And so that that's impactful to me because I think when I was younger, just to have the opportunity to see someone that's a big league or see someone that's I, you know, idolized, it means a lot to see them in person because you understand now they're normal. Like I think sometimes you get caught up when you don't have the exposure into thinking that some of these guys have superpowers because they're doing these miraculous things in whatever sport it is. And then you get to know them a little bit and you realize like they're human, they worked hard. Some guys, you know, they may have a little bit more than you, but at the end of the day, anybody can do it. As long as you put in the work and you dedicate yourself, you have an opportunity at anything you put your mind to. And so that's the most important thing for me. It's just, it's not always about donating things. Sometimes donating your time is the most valuable thing you can do. And so just being there for the kids, allowing them to have those conversations and maybe talk to you about some of their insecurities so they can grow through it. It's, that's the most important thing to me, just trying to give back. and. It's something that I'm very passionate about.
0: Yeah, and we were talking before about like you and Alec Thomas are both Chicagoland area guys, and and your high school I was looking up before it's like a 15 minute drive south of Guaranteed Rate Field. I, I feel like so much of high school ball now is dominated by guys from California and Texas and Florida. Cold weather state guys. Whenever you guys break out, it it sticks out in my mind. What is Chicago area baseball like? Like, what was it like coming through that system in which I'm sure you were pitching in gyms in February. You (laughs) you weren't throwing on the field, so like, you still developed into a pro pitcher. What was it like going through that?
3: We're just grinders, man. We work hard. It doesn't matter (laughs) who's watching where we are. We work hard. But I I feel a little a little shady talking about it, being that I'm in Arizona now. Like, obviously. I'm not that that tough of a guy. If yeah, I you got out. <laughs> you yeah. escaped. You can't. <laughs> However, you know, I did my time in Chicago and Minnesota, which is even colder. So I feel like I've earned this right at this point. But, you know, we we have the facilities now. Like, there, while it may not be directly comparative to, you know, guys in Cali or Florida, like, the facilities are there, the weight rooms, the big turf fields, the, the mounds, whatever it may be. And so there is no excuse not to get your work in. And While you may have a slower start when you get outside or whatever it may be, you can always use things to your advantage. Like, I know I have the experience pitching in the cold numerous times. You know, in my mind, I like to look at it as maybe when we get to October and I'm in the playoffs, hopefully pitching for the Pirates, I can deal with the cold. I've been here before. I'm not I'm not used to always throwing in 85, 90 degree weather. And so it's always things that you could build for me. You may look at it as a disadvantage now, but later down the road, it might be something that, you know, pushes you way beyond everyone else.
0: Yeah. And and, uh, given all your years of development since then, I mean, if you could go back to the junior version of yourself, A, what would be different about you as a pitcher? I'm sure you've added some miles per hour as you've matured, Uh but just what would it be like to go back to yourself as a junior in high school and say like, Hey, there is a path here for you to actually become pro.
3: It would first of all, it'd be a blast because I was still hitting then, and I loved hitting. <laughs> you know, I had to make the business decision, but I enjoyed the heck out of going out there and being able to mash every single day. But just looking back, honestly, I just try to tell myself to enjoy the game. I think that, you know, being on the business side of it now, especially going through the draft process, which is kind of the most business oriented part that I've been through to this point. Sometimes you you forget what you're doing it for, and and it starts to become much more than baseball, and so. I just really try to go out there and enjoy every second I had where there was no fear, there was no anxiety. It was another game, and I was trying to go kill. I was trying to go dominate whatever I was doing and win that game. And so just trying to keep that same lightheartedness that you see some of these guys in the big leagues having, and that's why they have the success. They don't put additional pressure on themselves.
1: All right, JP. I got to ask you a, a question about your your Big Ten time. Um, being somebody who, you know, like we said, you've probably been throwing indoors a lot, working in in gyms until March and April and all that. Uh, I got to ask you two full question: your favorite venue that you played at in college baseball, and the weirdest venue that you played at in college baseball. Because I think you guys played a few games at US Bank Stadium, right? Uh, The home of the Vikings. So, and it's not like it was the Metrodome where it was sort of built with the idea of baseball also in mind. So it's a very unorthodox looking field, but favorite place and like the the most unorthodox place that you've played.
3: So I'll start with most unorthodox is definitely U.S. Bank Stadium. Um, (laughs) I love the place, especially being in Minnesota. I will never choose being out at Siebert in March where it's still snowing. (laughs) So the fact that we get to play and stay home is awesome. However, you know, the places, the metrics are a little different. It's a football field. And I think the worst part is that no matter how many fans you have, it will never feel like anyone's there. I mean, the place a is point. made to fit 100,000 people, and the most we're getting is maybe eight or ten or whatever it may be. So no one ever feels like they're cheering or anything. So i say that's the weirdest, but I did love that place. And the most exciting, I'd say TD Ameritrade. I, I played there my freshman year in the Big Ten tournament, and I got to throw against Nebraska in game one. Being the hometown team, it's all red in the stands. They're doing their big chance, go big red, and all that stuff. And I'm I'm a freshman that didn't think he was throwing in game one of the Big Ten tournament. So when my coach called me, he said, Massey, go get hot. And I looked around, wondering whose last name was Massy. Until everyone, <laughs> like, is there another asking. one of us here? Right. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, it was one of those situations where it's like, there's no way you're the first guy out of the pen. We started getting beaten a little bit by that point, but I was like, We'll get one of our mature guys in there to hold it down, and I got called and I got to run past all the fans to get to the bullpen. But you know, I had one of my best outings. It was a blast. I had people yelling against me. It was it was a lot of fun. I, it was an experience that I wouldn't take back for anything.
0: That is all right, awesome. JP. Well, as we look forward to your first full season here, also uh, before I get into my question, I feel like Tyler, you should say what school did you I go to. I probably
1: should admit that I'm a Nebraska alumnus, so I ah. should, I'm, I'm very I was very selfishly excited when you said that. <laughs> I felt very, felt very good. But this is how old I am compared to, especially you, but even Sam. In my in my college career, we were still in the Big Twelve, so we didn't even okay. have like you know the the series <laughs> in Ann Arbor or in the Twin Cities or wherever. So that was uh it was a much different world back then.
3: <laughs> I will say, while I don't love Nebraska, being a Minnesota guy, you guys packed the stands no matter where we played, and I appreciate that. You know, okay. people, especially for baseball, people coming out, it makes the environment that much better. That much more competitive, their adrenaline starts flowing. So I always love Facing Nebraska. Absolutely.
1: JP and I right now are the handshake emoji. It's like his name. Absolutely. You guys are making
0: me feel like I chose the wrong region. Yeah, of take
3: the, that, the Northeastern guy.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Um, but anyway, what I was about to say was you as you're looking forward here to your first full season, we've talked so much about the growth that you've had over the last two years. When you look forward to what things could be at the end of September, what are you hopeful? You'll be saying by then, having experience, whether it's Bradenton or Greensboro or, you know, maybe even Altoona. Um, what are you hoping you'll be able to say at the end of September about what your first full season was like?
3: Cool, that is a loaded question. Um, I don't know. I guess the, the most simple answer I can give is that I hope that all the hard work i put in this offseason pays off. Uh, I think hard work is one of those things that, you know, it's difficult to motivate yourself to do something every day, especially not knowing. What the outcome will be. Hard work doesn't guarantee you success. And so sometimes it's difficult when you know how much work you put in and you still don't have that success or you're having failure. And so I hope by the end that I'm able to just follow my process and go out there each and every day, remain confident. You know, I'm going to say dominate because who wants to go out there and get licked up every single time they pitch? So I hope that by the end, you know, I I get to look at my journey and be appreciative for the year that I had and hopefully build on it because. At the end of the day, I'm trying to get to Pittsburgh as, as quick as possible, and I'm trying to help the team win as soon as possible.
0: Yeah, and, and we'll end on this one real quick. Just be, I feel like you've introduced yourself really well to Pirates fans over this last 20 minutes we've been talking, but as they get to know you, because this is your you know introduction to Pirates baseball, they're going to see you for the first time this spring. What do you hope they know about you as both a Pirates prospect and a future Pirate yourself? Ah,
3: There's a lot of personality there. I don't think it's overbearing. I would like to think not, but uh there's a lot of personality. Um, and you know, I'm always gonna be a regular person, so I'm always gonna be someone that's gonna banter with the fans, talk with anybody. It doesn't really matter. I like I said earlier, I try to make a positive impact, won't always work, but you know, I'm just human. So just come up to me. I'm willing to talk, I'm willing to give advice where I can. And uh you'll see a lot of stuff coming here soon, whether it's bowling, golfing. Just being competitive, being myself, I think they'll see some stuff coming out here
0: soon. Well, I'm very excited to see it, and very excited to see you out there in Bradenton uh, coming up in the, here in the spring. I think I will be in Bradenton, so I will. I'm going to be searching you out, man. I want to see Let's this cool that you talked about it, uh, <laughs> how, how it developed, and the other things you weren't willing to talk about about how your stuff is developing. So, I'll, hey, I'll, if I
3: give it uh, out now, then I, I'm putting myself at a disadvantage. Like I said, I, I hear you, this bird. And I'm trying to hold my cards tight like I'm playing poker. I, I understand
0: you pitchers. I know how it works. That's that's yes, fair. But J.P. Massey, thanks so much for joining us here on the show before the show, and we'll be checking in with you down the line.
3: Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. And uh, Pirates, let so go Well, huge thanks to J.P. Massey
1: from the Pittsburgh Pirates organization for joining the show this week. And uh, Josh Jackson stops by for Ghost of the Miners coming up next. But before he does, we wanted to give you uh, an item of note. If you love Ghost of the Miners, which we know you do because everybody does, uh, you can go to MILB.com. We now have a story form edition of Ghost of the Miners that is up on the site right now. Josh tackles uh, a team from the Cornhusker State, the Beatrice Milk Skimmers uh, and that is the way that you pronounce that town's name. Uh, if you were, if you were reading it and wondering, uh, the Beatrice milk skimmers, who played in the mink league, which, uh, resides in Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, and Kansas. Uh, and you can take a look at uh, what the milk skimmers were like in the early part of the 1900s. Uh, that's up on the site right now. Josh Jackson swinging by for ghost of the Miners. We interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. <laughs>
5: all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One really played ball in the olden days. If you think you've heard of the others, you're in a hazy daze. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Yosemite Sams B. The Grand Rapids Joshers C, the Tyler Tylerians, D, the South Bend Bens! You'll be certain I'm joshing with you, but B, the Grand Rapids joshers were dead serious when they took the field representing Michigan's Furniture City in the Central League of 1920 and 1921. The Joshiest Josh on the Joshers was Josh DeVore, who by that point had already had the distinction of playing on teams that went to the World Series in four consecutive years. Likely feeling a victim of a cosmic joke when he was on the losing side as a member of the New York Giants in both 1911 and 1912, and seeing that club lose again in 1913 after he'd been traded that May, but earning the last laugh as a member of the Boston Miracle Braves of 1914. A one-time speed demon who'd enlisted in the army to fight in the Great War, DeVore returned to the game with the American Association's Indianapolis Club in 1919, then was hired, partially on the basis of a recommendation of indie manager Jack Hendricks, to helm the Grand Rapids entry to the reformed Central League in early May of 1920, not more than two weeks before the circuit season began. The Central League had been out of business since shutting down for the war after the 17 campaign, and a good deal of effort and expense went into its rebirth with four teams for 1920, the hiring of DeVore to manage and play for the Grand Rapids Club, serving as one of the final pieces of the puzzle to get that season together. From the first month of DeVore's hiring, the press began to refer to Josh DeVore's club at Grand Rapids. And variations thereof, leading to the team being casually called the Joshers. DeVoreans just doesn't have the same ring. But this team was not just joking around. Opponents got no chuckles out of the Joshers, who went 76 and 50 to win the Gonfalon, as league batting champion Lance Richborg provided abundant offense, and no hurler in the league pitched prettier than Frank Rose. The Joshers' jabs fell flat in 21, though, as DeVore, the ultimate Josher, was replaced as manager by one Lewis Wolf in August, and the club wound up. 59 and 71, 28 and a half games out of first place. The next year, Bob Wells was in the skipper's seat, and the Grand Rapids team went into the books as the Bill Bobs. And that's how things turned too serious for the Joshers. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these teams was always ready to provide run support in the minors of yesteryear? A the Fredericksburg Guy Fridays! B the Port Louisa Sidekicks! C the Newark Co-Pilots! Wanna know the answer? Get some help! Or tune into the next goes to the miners! But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill is making plans for Valentine's Day, and I've got to find him two tickets to the donkey races. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, we'll get set to uh, say goodbye for this week's episode of the show before the show. But thanks to Josh Jackson for stopping by the Joshers. I was really disappointed. Who do I contact in Tyler, Texas? Is There's never been a team called the Tylerians. I'm not, <laughs> not really pleased yeah. about that. Like, I'm happy for Josh with the Joshers, but.
2: Yeah, or the South Bend Benz. Let's get yeah. on it. Let's get on it.
1: The Yosemite Sam's would have definitely been the best. <laughs> I know. Yeah. All the names. That would have been I, I want to redo
0: our hat logo conversation and just make the Yosemite Sam's.
1: Yeah, it's if just
2: throughout his hair and beard,
1: he, he, that is true. If you if you just, just focused in, in on that mustache, you could probably <laughs> you could do. I mean, we could have a Yosemite Sam look for you. Yeah, I don't I know how my well hair orange. I don't know how well. Yeah, Palma Mass lends itself to like a cowboy hat look, and the you know all of. Hey, that. it's Western Massachusetts. That is true. It is Western Massachusetts. You were once on the frontier of Massachusetts. That is exactly. True. Uh, Well, we got a lot coming up for you on next week's episode of the show before the show, including uh, some more alternate identities that are coming out of the minor league landscape and promo calendars that are getting set to roll out. I got a text from a minor league front office employee yesterday that said, uh, I just got to look at our promo schedule. I'm not allowed to talk about any of it, but I want you to know that I'm very excited. So there are minor league front office members who are thrilled across the landscape and soon you too will be thrilled knowing what's coming up for them. Uh, Also, pitchers and catchers. Reporting the spring training, so we'll have conversation on non-roster invitees among top prospects, uh, as well as the World Baseball Classic. We are inside of a month to go to first pitch of the WBC. Prospects galore across rosters uh, on the WBC, which are now uh, available online. By the time you are hearing this, they were unveiled on February 9th on MLB Network. And, uh, yeah, we we got a fun show coming up for next week. I'm excited.
0: Yeah, I mean, baseball will will be back, question mark, like if, if you count getting blurry photos of uh, <laughs> pitchers and catchers reporting and guys walking into locker rooms and kind of throwing the ball around and
1: stretching yeah. a little bit. But hey, I'll take it. Hey, man, Shohei Otani's been posting stuff on Instagram of himself doing bullpens, and um, that's enough for me. That's baseball is back in, in my world. Uh, I'm just excited to see that dude out there again for, uh, for another year. Um. So, a lot coming up on next week's episode of the show before the show, which means if it's mid-February and we're already that jam-packed, this is like seven straight months of jam-packed podcast episodes coming your way. Uh, no more slacking off. Nothing else quiet. The season has arrived. Kind of. Yeah, slacking off
0: on a week in which we had two interviews.
1: <laughs> All right, about
0: people getting excited for the season, but <laughs> yes.
1: Oh, man. Get in touch with the show podcast at MILB.com. You can find everybody on Twitter as well. Benjamin Hills at Ben's Biz. Sam Dykster's is at Sam Dykstra, MILB. Josh Jackson, Josh Jackson, MILB. And I am at Tyler Mon. And uh, for all those dudes and for uh, Johnny Bravo and JP Mazzy, my name is Tyler Mon. We'll catch you next week.